If you're not ready for the Judges series to end, you probably will be by the time this this lesson is over. Um, because I, this morning talking about you ain't seen nothing yet with the miracle. Well, it's been pretty dark and bleak and scary and lots of fallen people, lots of fallible people, lots of failure. But the final chapters are are worse. Um, it, it's it's going to be bad tonight. Um, so Judges seventeen to twenty one is not is not pretty. Um, over the years, John Scott, we get to hear a lot of people <laughs> offer their takes on all things church related. That's what happens when you're in ministry or you're an elder. Um, you get to hear what people don't like. Um, a lot of times, what people do like, but people offer their opinions about. I didn't like that song, or I don't like that second verse, or that prayer was too long, or the preacher wasn't quote-unquote on today, or the, the coffee was tepid, or I mean, lots of different uh, opinions offered by folks, you know. They, they don't have to be here. This is a volunteer thing. Thank you for being at Preston Crest. They put their money in the plate, and they want to tell you what they think about a wide variety of things, and that's not here. That's every church that I've ever been a part of, and so we hear these things, and, and it's kind of like... Uh, as people are headed out the door to the, or sitting at the restaurant over at Chili's or something, you kind of get the Sunday morning Yelp. You know what Yelp is, where you review restaurants and you review other businesses. We kind of do our Sunday morning Christian Yelp, where we review uh, how things went at church. And, uh, I mean, by the way, you can actually find ratings, you know, for churches. Like on Google, as I was preparing this sermon, I was like, I wonder what Google rates us. We're 4.6 out of 5, all right. Uh, but who cares? I mean, really. I mean, we do care what people think. I mean, we want people to have a good experience. But, And I know this sounds a little snarky, um, but don't we care how God rates us? I mean, isn't that really? I mean, if we're really thinking about this other realm of pleasing people, maybe, maybe, you know, we're, we're getting over here and we need to be centered on God a little bit. Just an idea there. And so the next time you hear someone say something like, yeah, I didn't really enjoy worship today, you can look at them and say, hey, good thing we weren't worshiping you, right? I mean, good thing we're worshiping God and not you because, you know. So we come to the end of the book of Judges, and we find that people, human beings like us, they had gotten to the point where their opinions mattered, where their preferences were what drove everything. Individualism to the nth degree here at the end of the book of Judges. Um, they didn't consider themselves unbelievers. We've talked about this. They would have checked the box. We are Yahweh worshipers. We worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Um, but the way they thought, the decisions they made, and the way they conducted their lives it was as if Yahweh was God, dot, 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 in name only, in name only. Uh, functionally, functionally, on the operational day-to-day -day level, they were functioning as their own gods. And you may think that's harsh, but we'll get into the text, and maybe you'll agree with me by the end tonight. I'll be honest with you, I'm kind of glad we're finishing this out, because this is not a group of stories in chapters 20, uh, 17 to 21 that really inspire, that really encourage. Uh, I think we've got some lessons for sure we can take away, but, but maybe not things that are going put to a, put a bounce in your step as you launch a new week. So what these chapters do a great job at is showing us 
what does this look like? What is this world uh, where our opinions drive things, where we get to have it our way? How does this look? Um, when we're making God in our image, instead of the Holy Spirit making us into God's image, um, when, when He exists to serve us, <laughs> instead of the other way around, uh, when we make our plans and then we ask God, our prayers are all about, God, bless my plans, bless this, bless, I've got all these plans, I want you to come in and bless all of my stuff. Instead of seeking Him and His will and, and His wisdom, what does that look like? Well, the end of Judges. So, from the book of Joshua, which we started in Joshua months ago, and this, there's this progression to the end of the book of Judges, there is, well, let's call it, let's not call it a progression, let's call it a regression in history, because that's really what it was. You see, uh, as we begin Joshua chapter 1, God is God. God is sitting on the throne. God is setting the standard, and we have this really godly, not perfect, but godly leader, Joshua, who's following in the footsteps of Moses, and God is setting the standard. And then if you kind of watch the stories unfold, we begin to set the standard. The community begins to set the standard. And then as we get toward the end of Judges tonight, I set the standard. My opinion decides things. So there's this movement from God to self through Joshua and Judges. He sets morality. He is the ethical compass. Then over time, we, the community, the group, we begin deciding what's right and wrong for us, what worked for us, and then gradually... Um, I take over for myself, and I begin to decide what's right and wrong. And I'm telling you this because I think not only do we see this in history, way back in Joshua and Judges, but we see it at play in our own world and sometimes in our own lives as well. So in these final chapters, we have stories where God is present in name only. In name only. Uh, stories where really eh, people are doing pretty much as they please. And the Bible tells us, this is not me interposing my opinion onto the text. The Bible tells us this, like Judges chapter 17, verse 6. In those days, Israel had no king, no authority. Everyone did, eh, as he saw fit, right? And then the very last words, I mean the final words in this book, the ones that kind of sum up the zeitgeist that sum up the spirit of the age. Joshua 21, 25, in those days Israel had no king. All of the people did whatever seemed right in their eyes. Hmm. Often folks think, uh, John Scott, that you know we live in the moral wild west. Uh, things have never been this bad. I'm sure every generation since Adam and Eve thought that. You know, things have never been this bad. We are completely a moral society and all this stuff. And, and I'm not going to defend our era. I'm not going to defend our days. But I would point out, eh, really, the storyline hasn't changed all that much. People are people. And in our final chapters, we will find story after story with some themes that are really 
are really not God-honoring themes. One of them would be the strong oppressing the weak. Because they can. We will see women being used, mistreated. We will find stories of of religious apostasy. Let's throw a little of that in the mix, chapter 17. We'll find story, chapter 19, of rape, gang rape, chapter 19. We'll find a story of homosexuality, chapter 19, violence against women, chapters 19 and 21, rampant violence, rampant brutality, um, just general brutality against people, chapters 20, and then human trafficking in chapter 21 as well. So, here we go. Chapter 17 opens with a spotlight on a man called Micah. Okay, this is not our prophet that you think of who has a book there. This is a different Micah. Micah overhears his mother. Uh, She is ranting and raving. She is very upset because a thief has stolen her silver. I would be upset too. The silver is gone, and so she's just kind of kind of ranting and raving and cursing, and he hears this, and he is, um, let's say, emotionally engaged in this because he knows it was him. He took mom's silver. And so he has some sort of attack of conscience, I guess, and he, he says, Mom, it was me, and he gives her her silver back, and she is excited, and she is grateful and she is overjoyed and to celebrate that she's got her money back she hands over 200 shekels out of the amount that is returned by her son Micah 200 shekels and she says to kind of celebrate this moment and and spiritualize this moment why don't you take these 200 shekels and go to the local silversmith and have him make an idol for our house okay Let's have him make an idol for our house. Um, That way we can use this to enhance our worship here at home. So Micah puts in the order, and this image, this graven image, this is not an image of a foreign deity. This is not Micah and his mom creating a Baal or an asterisk there at house. They want an image representing their God, representing Yahweh. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, wait a second. Wasn't there one of the Ten Commandments that specifically prohibited this? Didn't the Second Commandment just very clearly say, never make a graven image? You are correct. Uh, But they do it because, you know, they're setting the rules here. Of course, it's forbidden. There is no human-crafted statue or image of God that can come close to capturing who God is, to capturing His glory, to capturing His majesty, and so it's forbidden to try in the Old Testament to make an idol like this. But Micah orders this image to be made. The statue is made. Um, He decides to go ahead and make an ephod, a priestly garment. We saw Gideon do this earlier in in Joshua. uh, uh, Yeah, Joshua. He makes some other idols and creates kind of a family shrine, a little family prayer room with all of this idolatrous stuff in it, and Micah appoints one of his sons, his mom's grandsons, to be the priest, all right? Um, Then, a little time passes, and a Levite, this is somebody that is a part of the, the clergy class, 
Somebody who should know their stuff around a temple or a tabernacle. Um, their calling was to take care of the things of God. And this, this Levite happens to be traveling by, and Micah calls him over. They, they host him for a little bit. And Micah makes an offer to this Levite. He says, hey, why don't you come and be our priest? All right? Why don't you come and be our family priest? Now, you say, wouldn't the Levite have known that this is wrong on many levels? Of course he knew it was wrong on many levels. But Micah, the text tells us in chapter 17, offered a nice salary and benefits package to the priest. So, yeah, he accepted. Chapter 18, so that's 17. Chapter 18, a group of Danites, one of the, the tribe of Dan, Israelites, a group of Danites comes rolling through. They are needing to secure more lands for their tribe, they have not yet found uh, kind of all of the permanent real estate that their tribe needs. So they come through. They recognize the Levite. In fact, they recognize someone hears his voice and like, hey, I know that guy. So they recognize this Levite. They offer him a promotion. They say, hey, buddy, um, right now you are the priest for this family. We will offer you the job to be the priest for our entire tribe. And so the Levite says, sure thing. So he joins the Danites. He takes this promotion. So let's just read here verses 18 to 21. Look at how this, this kind of unfolds. Uh, when the priest saw the men carrying all the sacred objects out of Micah's shrine, he said, what are you doing? They're taking all of his, you know, the stuff that was made there. He's like, why are you taking all of our stuff? Be quiet and come with us, they said. Be a father and a priest to all of us. Isn't it better for a priest to, to be a priest for an entire tribe and clan of Israel than for a household of just one man? Come to the mega church. You know, what are you doing over in that tiny little church? Well, the young priest was quite happy to go with them, so he took along, the. let's take the ephod with us as well, the household idols and the carved image. They turned and they started on their way again, placing their children livestock possessions in front of them. So this big procession of Danites. Now Micah, remember the original guy who came up, let's, let's build this idol in our home and let's hire this priest. Um, he figures out what happened and he's like, hey, he, he runs to catch up with this caravan. Hey, what are you guys doing? You hauled off my priest? You hauled off a bunch of my religious articles here. And so um, here's how it goes in verses 24 to 26. Uh, what do you mean, what's the matter? Because they're like, Micah, why are you running after us? Why are you chasing us down? Micah's like, what do you mean, what's the matter? Um, you've taken all the gods I have made, and my priest, I've got nothing left. The men of Dan said, remember this power dynamic, you do what I say because I'm stronger than you, the strong oppressing the weak. The men of Dan said, watch what you say. There are some short-tempered men. This is really kind of Don Corleone, uh, you know, backhanded threat here or something. Watch what you say. There are some short-tempered men around here who, you know, they might get angry and kill you and your family. Okay. So the men of Dan continued on their way. When Micah saw that there were too many of them for him to attack, turned around and went home. What's he going to do? Now, I like that. They don't really defend themselves, do they, against these charges of theft. You say, we stole your priest. You say, we stole your household gods and such. But there's a bunch of us. 
and there's not very many of you. And some of our guys, yeah, they're kind of hot-headed, so you better just be quiet and go back home. That's the way that works. Chapter 19. Things are getting progressively worse. Okay, chapter 19, starting at verse 1. Now in those days Israel had no king. There was a man from the tribe of Levi. So another Levite. There was a man from the tribe of Levi living in a remote area of the hill country of Ephraim. One day he brought home a woman from Bethlehem in Judah to be his concubine. But she became angry with him, and she returned to her father's home back in Bethlehem. So, here's another Levite. This one is hooking up with a concubine, a, a sex worker. And he keeps her on retainer. You're, you're mine now. You're going to work for me. It's a little bit weird, right? I mean, you've got this, this man of God, this, this fellow who's a Levite, and he's got a sex worker on retainer. Um, yeah, but in those days, as the text tells us, everybody pretty much did whatever looked good to them, whatever sounded good to them. So that's what he did. Anyway, his story gets really bizarre. So, he, so she has run away back to daddy's house. He goes to collect her at daddy's house there in Bethlehem. Uh, and he, he, after a little bit of negotiating and some stuff there at her house, he's able to get her back. So later on, they are traveling together. They're headed back, and he's gotten, uh, he's gotten her, and so they're headed back. And, and they come to a town on their journey called uh, Gibeah, which is in the tribal lands of the tribe of Benjamin. And they're going to need to spend the night in Gibeah. Traditionally, um, in that culture, some townsperson would welcome you into their home. You know, you don't, you're not going to let you spend the night here on the, on the town square. That's just not safe. Uh, but the day passes, and as the hours go by, no one offers them lodging until finally uh, a tired old farmer comes walking in after finishing his chores. And he's like, hey, you guys, you don't have a house to stay at? Well, come and stay at my house. And while they are at his home kind of arranging their stuff and everything, well, the townspeople show up. The men of the town show up. Um, a mob. Let's be honest. This is just a mob. They show up at this farmer's home, and they're banging on the door, and they want the farmer to send the Levite, this man, they want him to send the Levite out into the town square so they can take turns raping this Levite, all right? The Levite wants to save his own skin, and this lady, I mean, this concubine, this, she's a professional sex worker, so he just kind of pushes her out the door and locks the door behind her, so there she is in the middle of this mob of men. Yeah, like I said, these final chapters are... So they gang rape her throughout the evening, abusing her all night long. In the morning, she is dead. She is dead. Aren't you glad you came here tonight for this lesson from the book of Judges? The Levite is is very angry, and when he gets to where he was headed, he te he's carried her body with him, and he then uh, cuts her cadaver into 12 pieces and kind of ships one piece of her body to each of the 12 tribes 
letting them know about this story that happened, how these men, these Benjamites, raped her and, and killed her, and the injustice that has been suffered. And he demands that things be made right. So the tribes, with the exception, obviously, of the Benjamites who did this, the tribes form a war council, and they decide to go and exact revenge on the tribe of Benjamin for the murder and rape of this woman. So they attack the Benjamites. And they are repelled by the Benjam Benjamites. Uh, finally, eventually they, uh, they do attack and they overwhelm the men of Benjamin. Eventually, 21,500 Benjamites are dead. Now the soldiers of Benjamin are decimated, so there's no one left to guard the towns uh, in the tribal lands of Benjamin. So the Israelites, the other tribes, they just begin to storm village after village, town after town, and they put everybody to the sword. All the women, all the children, all the livestock, they are just, it is a, a bloodlust, basically. And there were a number of Benjamite men who survived. Not all of the soldiers were killed from the tribe of Benjamin, but all of a sudden, they, after everything settles and the killing is done, they're like, we don't have any women left as wives. We don't have any potential wives. And check this out. The Israelites realized they were taking away all of the potential wives here. I mean, murdering them. And the Israelites pledged among themselves, they're not going to get any of our ladies. We're not going to give any of our daughters to a Benjamite to be a Benjamite's wife. So the tribe of Benjamin now is kind of doomed. Their future is, they have no future. They're not going to have any kids. They're not going to have any grandkids. And so some time passed, and the Israelites begin to feel, yeah, a little bit sorry. Maybe we shouldn't have killed all of their, their women of childbearing age. Um, and so the Israelites go to this weakly defended city called Jabesh-Gilead. And there, this is a, a very bizarre way to address this problem of the wife shortage. They get to this city, and they put all of the men to the sword. They put all of the women to the sword, except for the virgin girls, the young ladies, the unmarried girls. And then it's like, okay, now we've got these girls. You Benjamites can marry these girls. Right? There weren't quite enough of these girls. So they knew of this other area where there was an, uh, an annual grape harvest, an annual um, festival. And the virgins uh, were part of this festival. All the virgins would go outside of town into, this into the vineyards. And they would dance around. And, and it was kind of this tradition of kind of to, to bring in the, the, the grape harvest. And so the Israelites counseled the Benjamites who still needed wives, they said, hey guys, you guys who still need wives, go and hide and wait for these girls to come out. And when they come out, grab them and take them. They can be your wives. And so the Benjamites did this, essentially kidnapping these young ladies. And then that's it. That's the end of the book of Judges. That's how the curtain closes on this time in Israel's history. 
The last verse, which we've already read, I'll just read again, captures this cultural moment. Judges 21, 25, in those days Israel had no king. All the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. I would just kind of mentally put a circle around that word, whatever. You know, if it seems right, there are no limits. Just, just do it. You know, you be your own moral legislature. Make your own decision. Chart your own. Who needs God? Who needs, you know, morality and ethics? And when everyone decides for themselves what is right, here's what I want us to notice tonight in the year 2018. That's not a new concept, okay? This is nothing new. It's been tried before more than once. For ancient Israel, it yielded oppression of the weak. That's what happened when everyone did as they saw fit. It yielded mistreatment of women. It yielded young girls being kidnapped, taken away from their families. It yielded murder. It yielded brutality. Um, It yielded unchecked sexual urges, homosexuality over here, rape happening over here. Um, And the strange thing is, as you're reading these final chapters in the book of Judges, few people seem to be upset. I mean, where is the prophetic voice in chapter 17 to 21? Where is the moral outrage? I don't see it. And so these stories are jarring. These stories can seem very kind of distant and disconnected from us, so foreign. Certainly very easy to read these stories uh, and make moral judgments on these and point fingers. It is harder, I think, with these kinds of stories to kind of locate ourselves in this moment. Um, But the concept of each person deciding what works for them, of everybody kind of deciding, I'm going to kind of develop my own faith, kind of a boutique faith, a a, a niche morality here for myself, Um, that is not a distant concept. That is not a foreign concept. We see that all the time. Uh, Even in our churches, we can make our preferences our judgments, our opinions, our traditions. We can make those things the reference point for what ought to be and what ought not to be. Years back, a guy came up to me um, at church one Sunday. A single guy. I think I'd been doing a series on God's plan for sexuality. Um how it was his idea and how in his parameters he intends to bless us and all of this. And he came up to me um, at the end of church one Sunday morning, and he was keen to debate with me on whether or not sex before marriage was actually a sin. Um, I pointed out repeated prohibitions, not just Old Testament, but prohibitions in the New Testament against fornication. Um, But he had read a blog post you know, <laughs> he had read a blog post that really those prohibitions, they, they weren't talking about premarital sex. They were talking about something else. And I shared with him, okay, that's interesting. I can tell you this, that blog post may be an interesting uh, read. That's certainly an alternative version because for 2,000 years now, pretty much all your Hebrew and Christian scholars have agreed that this is what, this is what fornication means. All right. It's 
you know, sex before marriage is, is contrary to God's word. That's, that's agreed on by pretty much everybody who's read these texts. Well, efforts, stepping away from that, kind of efforts to massage our understanding of God's word or God's will or condone or promote our agenda, those efforts are nothing new. All right, nothing new about that. People have been forming God into their own image for, well, for millennia. And so Micah made his own little silver version of Yahweh, one that he could carry around, one that he could put a, a dollar value on. Uh, he knew exactly where that God was at all times, and, except when it got taken from him, right? Um, but today, we still craft our own little boutique religions, our own little faith that fits us and works for me. You know, this is how I see God, and this is how I kind of see uh, sexuality, or this is kind of how I see this or that or the other thing. And that's just, that's just a really dangerous place to be when you're talking about the things of God. If there actually is a one true God, if, if Yahweh is real, that's a dangerous, dangerous place to be. Authentic faith says this. Authentic faith says, Lord, I, uh, r- rather, Lord, you owe me absolutely nothing. I owe you everything. Um, I have no right to demand anything from you or expect anything from you. I exist for you and for your glory. You're God. I'm not. That's authentic faith. Um, Idolatry takes a little bit of that, a little bit of the truth there, and it molds it, puts it in a form. It molds it into something that is more pleasing to me, more palatable to me. You know, biblical faith surrenders to God so that he can make me into someone who pleases him. Idolatry forms God into something that pleases me. Um, so here's a, I think this is kind of a good diagnostic tool to kind of, you know, what does this mean? Okay, when God, here's what it means. When God is on the throne of my life, I'm going to love people. And I'm going to use things. <laughs> when I'm on the throne of my life, I tend to what? I tend to love things, and I tend to use people. That's what happens, and that's what we see in these chapters at the end of the book of Judges. So the question is, will I live under the authority of the Lord, trusting him, obeying his word, or will, uh, will I live a life of surrender, or will I live a life of self-indulgence? Will I defend the weak? Will I defend those without power, but who are made in the image of God? Will I be a champion for justice, um, or not? Will I speak up and work for the unborn, the immigrant, the oppressed, the minority, the poor. Will I be a spokesman for them 
Or will I believe in the power of the strong? I can because I, I will because I can. The good news as we finish tonight, and I think this is good news, and we probably need a little good news at this point. The good news is Judges is not the only book in the Bible. Okay? This is not the only book in the Bible. There is, in fact, one image of God, if I may, one solitary image of God that we can look to, one who is not man-made, but God-made, or not God-made either, right? I mean, one who perfectly reflects the character of God, and that is Jesus. He is the perfect likeness of God. If you want to know what God is like, look to Jesus. Paul declared this in the book we studied on Sunday morning in Colossians. He said in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn over all creation. So tonight, let's surrender to the lordship of Jesus. We do not live as those who, quote, have no king. We have a king. We follow King Jesus. Let's be standing and let's worship together.